we are not looking at the book of Revelation in a sense of trying to figure out what every little every little thing means and and to stand here and say that I know for sure this is what it means because like a lot of other places in the Bible a lot of it is open for interpretation and for me to stand here and say that I know exactly what the writer meant when he put that down it would just be silly and in regard to that, and this doesn't have a lot to do with the lesson, but it is something I think is important for us to, to think about. When it comes to things of the Bible, we can disagree on what things mean. We can disagree on the interpretation of a scripture. But when we disagree to a point to where we don't show the least bit of Christianity or brotherly love, then I think we've, both parties have gotten off base. And I will say that because this past week, I had an opportunity to spend pretty much all week, all day long, with someone that loves to discuss the Bible. Which is good. Except that he and I don't exactly see eye to eye, and so he and I can talk about it. But his son, he and his son don't see eye to eye on the meaning of some of the things in the Bible. And so in the midst of a discussion over what certain things in the Bible mean, this turned into a heated argument at which the father said, you are not my son anymore, and I disown you over a biblical conversation. Right. And it was at that point that I stood up and got in between them and I said, we're going to pray. Because it was the only thing I could think to do. And as we look at some of these things in the book of Revelation and in anything that it comes to when, it's, when we're talking about the Scripture, you, you have the right to disagree with somebody. And if you have a reason and you can show why this is what you believe, I'm not saying you're right, but you are entitled to that opinion. As I told, as I told this man, I said, I feel that you certainly have the right to be wrong. This is what I think, and I can respect what you think, and I'm not going to fight with you about it. When we get to heaven, we'll find out for sure what the truth is. But until then, let's try to keep a, a Christian spirit among us. And so as we study this morning, or at any time that we're studying the Word of God and there's something there that is op open for a little bit of interpretation, please, let's stay in the Spirit. And especially in the Spirit of what we are, are trying to do here. And that's to learn the Word of God so that we can grow. With that being said... Let's start our lesson text. Revelation chapter 5, 1 through 3. We welcome you to High Point Church this morning. We are glad that you're with us. Let's read. 
Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Chapters 4 and 5, and we're looking at chapter 5 this week, we looked at chapter 4 last week, is a gateway or an introduction to the rest of the book of Revelation. In chapter 4, and we went in length about this last week, God appears in a scene of worship as the king of all heaven and earth. In chapter 5, it's a continuation of that. Last week we saw this throne and we saw the 24 elders and the beast and, and all those things. This is a continuation. The person that sits on the throne is holding a scroll. And most likely in our day, what we would relate it to in that day was a papyrus or a leather document that had writing on the inside and the outside. And this particular one was sealed with seven seals, a seal being they would pour hot wax out after it was rolled up and they would pour hot wax on it and then they would take a signet ring or a, a stamp or something. We talked about certain stones that hot wax wouldn't stick to and they would put their seal on it. Generally, one seal was all that it took. This particular one had seven seals. And what that was, it indicated that this was virtually impossible <coughs> for an unauthorized person to open up. So, what did the scroll contain? You know, it, it never says for sure what the scroll contained. It's more about that there was a scroll and the opening and who was able to open it. But views of that vary, and I'll give you a few, um, that it included God's covenant, maybe his covenant with Moses and his new covenant with man. Um, the law, maybe the law of Moses was written on it. His promises to his people. Those are all possibilities of things that could have been written on it. Since none of us were there, we can't say for sure, but those are some possibilities. Um, if you look at Daniel, we're not going to go there and try to compare it, but in Daniel 12 and 4, it suggests a scroll in that scripture there, and that particular scroll contained God's plan for the end time that was to take place sometime in the future. The idea is that unless those seals were broken, that what needed to be accomplished could not be accomplished. So here's a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. Maybe it contains the plan for the end of time, but unless it is opened up, that plan can't go forth. And that's kind of the setup for where we are. The plan for the future was... God's judgment of the wicked and the vindication of the, the righteous or the upright. And later on in chapter 6, the seals are actually broken and the scroll is opened up. In ancient times, scrolls usually had writing on one side. This particular one is described with having writing on both sides, which probably indicates that it was a extensive document that it had so much to say 
that they couldn't write it on one side, so they had to write it on both sides. The seven seals could possibly be a sign of perfection or completion. We talked about seven being used throughout the Bible, and especially in the book of Revelation, as a a perfect number that signified completion or perfection. So possibly that was the, the meaning of the seven seals. And then John says he sees a mighty angel, and this angel calls for someone to come forward and break the seals and reveal what's inside the scrolls. And it's interesting to note that the angel did not ask for someone who was able, influential, or powerful enough. Instead, he asked for someone that was worthy to break the seals. The Greek term that is rendered worthy refers to one that is fit or deserving. So he wasn't calling for someone that was powerful enough to break those seals. Obviously, most people could do that. It wasn't about strength. It was about somebody that was worthy to actually open those seals that scroll up. Only somebody that was morally perfect, if we look at the sense that this scroll contained the plan for the end time, only someone that was morally perfect could open this scroll. And amazingly, as this angel calls out, no one answers. There is no one that comes forth to break the seals and open the scroll. Going on in our text. Revelation 5, 4 through 6. And I wept much because no man was found. Now keep in mind, this is John. This is John looking on this scene. This is a vision that God has shown him. He's standing back as an observer. And he says, And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. I believe that John wept because he knew that the scroll was important and the angel was calling for someone. Nobody's coming and that means nobody would know what was in the scroll. If it was some miraculous, mighty plan that God had, we would never know it. Exactly. That's, and that's where we're headed. You're exactly right. I mean, that's, that would be the only real answer to that, to that situation. Apparently, John sensed the urgent significance that was in this document. I'm going back, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, me being John, do not weep. And here we go with what Brother Ashley was talking about. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. 
he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We talked a little bit about some of that last week, the seven spirits of God, and we won't go back into it. If you don't remember, you can get the CD and and review it. The four beasts and the 24 elders we talked about last week and what they signified, they are around the throne of God. Going on. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So here's what we're looking at. Here's this person sitting on a throne. That's the, the almighty king that everybody was singing to last week. Holy, 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 uh, Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The elders were singing their song of creation. And now these people are still around and this scroll is brought forth. The angel calls out for someone to come and open it. Nobody answers the call. And John starts to weep because he knows that there's something very significant in this scroll and no one is going to open it. But then one of the elders steps up and says, don't cry. There is one that's that came. There is one that is coming. And that is one that comes from the lineage of, of Judah. And John looks up and they speak. He's told that it's a lion. And when he looks up, it's a lamb. And it's a lamb that looks like it's been killed. And so this is a scene where we see a lot of symbolism. And you look at it and go, well, what does all this mean? I believe that if you look back through the Old Testament, there were a lot of metaphors. And I want to go to Genesis 19 and 9. I'm sorry, Genesis 49 and 9. 49 and 9. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. This is references all the way back in the Old Testament. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion he crouches down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. In other words, Judah is compared to a lion. In Isaiah 11 and 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. In verse 10, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. And then in Jeremiah 23 and 5, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely, and do what is just and right in the land. Now, with those scriptures being read, let's go back and read this. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open up the seven seals. So if you tie in the metaphors of the Old Testament with what John is writing here, it points to exactly who that is. The the people... God's people had called Judah, the founder of, of their tribe, a lion, had been described as a lion. And now this elder is taking that metaphor and applying it 
to the greatest member of that tribe of Judah, which is Jesus Christ. The lion represented a lot of things in that day. In fact, lions were very common in that day in the Middle East. They inhabited areas of Asia Minor, Syria, Israel, Persia, and Mesopotamia. The Asian lions were different than what we see at the zoo, the African lions. They were had a little bit scantier mane, a thicker coat. They had a longer tail tassel. The little thing on the end of their tail was a lot longer than on the African lions that we see at the zoo. Lions were a, a favorite animal of a lot of kings of that day. Uh, there are murals of lion hunts on the walls of Assyrian palaces. Uh, Pharaoh Ramesses II is said to have had a pet lion that stayed at his side. There was other kings that actually, um, they raised lions, they bred them and kept them for their pleasure like we would have a pet dog. It's different. But the scripture symbolizes a lot of different things with a lion. In 2 Samuel 1 and 23, 2 Samuel 1.23 Saul and Jonathan in the life that in life they were loved and gracious and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. So a lion signified strength. In Genesis 49 and 9 that we ran read while ago You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? It was a a sign of ferocity. In Proverbs 28 and 1, it shows that a lion was a sign of courage. Proverbs 28 and 1. The wicked man flees, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. So it shows boldness of the lion. And here's all these attributes that it's, it's prescribing to this lion. In Numbers 24 and 9, again tied into the tribe of Judah and associated with Israel. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed, referring to Israel. That was one of the promises that God made to Abraham. All those that bless you will be blessed and all those that curse you will be cursed. King of the beast, right. It is also symbolic in Isaiah 31 and 4 of God protecting His people. Isaiah 31 and 4. This is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls a great lion over his prey, and as though a whole band of sheep is called together against him, he is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord... Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights like a lion. So we see all these different attributes. And then in this scripture, we see that it actually refers to Jesus Christ. And the elder says, there's a lion that's coming that is able to, that's from the, the seed of Jesse, that, that is from that lineage of Jesse and as one of David's descendants, because Jesse was David's father. He's of the tribe of Judah. And if we look back through history, that's exactly who he was. The, the root of Jesse symbolizes a shoot or a sprout off of a main stem. And if you look at a family tree, that's exactly the way we picture a family tree, as a, a sprout off of the main branch. David is identified, or Jesus is identified several places as being in the lineage of David. 
Jesus Christ prevailed over sin. He triumphed over Satan. He triumphed over death through his sacrifice and his resurrection. So he was a mighty being because we see that he was like as a lion, that he conquered all of these things. But when John looked at this lion, he didn't see this ferocious beast. It says that he saw a lamb that looked like it had been killed. And you would think when you have the mention of a lion that the next thing is going to be this ferocious, monstrous beast that comes along and rips this scroll open. But instead, you see something completely different. And I I believe that John wrote this for a particular reason. To show that Jesus' victory, Jesus being the Messiah, His victory was not by means of military conquest or might but it was through an atoning sacrifice. So it kind of sets us up for one thing, because it does symbolize Christ, because He did defeat all. He defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He defeated death. So He con- he was a conquering person. But yet when we really see how He did it, it wasn't through power and might. It was through the sacrifice. And it kind of an unexpected image. The seven horns could signify, again, perfect power. Uh, Seven eyes may signify God's perfect knowledge. Again, those things are symbolic. John explains further that the seven eyes were the seven spirits of God. And this is a reference to, I believe, the perfection of the Spirit, as we talked about last week. And John watches as the the Lamb comes forward and takes the scroll from God's right hand. This action symbolizes that Jesus had carried out God's plan for the world. Here is the one that offered was offered as a sacrifice for our sins. If the scroll contains the plan for the end of the world, this is Jesus actually taking it and showing that this is completed. I am the one that is worthy to open this scroll. And only because of him is this scroll able to be opened. Going on, Revelation 5, 8 through 10. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. When the Lamb takes the scroll, the four beasts and the elders, they start to sing. Again, it's much like in chapter 4, they were singing to the one that was on the throne. Now they are recognizing who the Lamb is. 
They're saying, you are the one that did this, this, and this. And you are the only one that is worthy to open up the scroll. They played harps or lyres. Uh, and these were instruments that were used to accompany the singing of psalms. The golden vials, it says, were full of incense, and they were symbolic of the prayers of the saints. Now, one of the ways in the book of Revelation it calls believers to faithfulness is by various songs that they sang. And as you read through the book of Revelation, one thing that is, it's not as symbolic as a lot of other things because the words to the songs are direct. When we look at what was saying last week, it was, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. It showed the eternal nature of God. And the songs in the book of Revelation are very important because the themes of creation and redemption run this constant thread all through the book of Revelation. So the songs were important. In Revelation 4 and 8... We're going to back up a little bit. Each of the four living creatures had six wings covered with eyes all around. Even under his wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Here's a song that is a praise for the eternal and everlasting attributes of God. In verse number 11 of the same chapter, we find a creation hymn. This is sung by the 24 elders. They sang, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. And then later in the book we just, in the passage we just read, is this redemption hymn that they sang to the Lamb. So these are important. These songs of worship were an important part of what we read in the book of Revelation. Now see, a lot of people at this point would take all of the little things and, and we would talk about what each one means. And we've talked a little bit about that. But I think the overriding tone that goes through all of these scriptures that we read last week and this week is showing the worthiness of God, the redemptive power of Jesus Christ, and how they are worthy to be praised. If you set aside all the symbolism... The one thing that all these scriptures have in common is it points to the greatness of God. It points to the, the fact that God was manifest in flesh as Jesus Christ. And He died and He shed His blood and He was buried and He was resurrected. And because of that we have salvation. And all of that is put into this symbolic wording that we read in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. The scroll... The, the importance of the scroll was that it contained something very important that had to be carried out. Nobody else could open it. Nobody else could take it and complete the task. And so that points to the importance of Jesus Christ, that He wasn't just a man. There are people that thinks, think He was just a good person. There are religions that teach that He was just a good person. We know that He was God manifest in the flesh. He was God covered with skin. I like that description. God covered with skin.
it was fitting for Christ to receive the praise. It is fitting today for us to give praise. People often wonder, why do you people worship? What's the big deal with your worship? This is the reason. This is a, an example that is provided for us. This vision that John sees of the glory of God in heaven. And take away all the symbolism and the lamps and the animals and the, the elders and all those things. What it really boils down to is, God, you are worthy of my praise. That's what it's all about. That's exactly right. Hold on to that thought. We're headed right there. So the worshipers sang a new song. And this is to inaugurate the the redeemed order of this new kingdom that they're speaking of. What is that kingdom? It's the kingdom that we're going to inherit as believers. This is about the future. As Brother Ashley said a while ago, it talked about which was and is and is to come. What we're talking about now, this kingdom, is the kingdom that we're going to inherit. That's the part that is to come. It's still to come for us. It was to come for them, but it's still to come for us. But we are going to inherit this kingdom. It's promised in the Bible. Now, there's a story, and again, we're, we're still on the thought of worthiness to be praised. And why is God worthy to be praised? In World War II, the SS Dorchester was torpedoed by a German submarine off the coast of Greenland on February 2nd, 1943. There were 903 troops aboard the Dorchester, and they frantically put on life jackets and tried to scramble into lifeboats to abandon ship. There were four chaplains on board. There was a Jewish rabbi named Alexander Good. There was a Catholic priest named John Washington. And two Protestant members named ministers named George Fox and Clark Poling. They gave their life jackets that they had to men that were on that boat so that they could be saved. These four men locked arms and they went down with the ship as they prayed because they had given their life jackets away for someone else. And this was an incredible thing that has been celebrated because of the sacrifice that they made. But what is not often talked about was that the Coast Guard was actually escorting this ship. And the Coast Guard boats that were around this ship, in order to help find the men, they fired off these star shells that actually would light up the sky. And in turn, they could see the water. And that way they could rescue the men. But what that did is when they lit up the sky... It exposed them to the German submarines. They put their own life at risk to save those that were in need. And the Coast Guard continued to comb the area. They eventually 
pulled men out of life jackets out of the water that was very cold. It was off the coast of Greenland. And all told, the Coast Guard boats rescued 230 men from that ship. The Apostle Paul described the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Romans 5, 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ loved us. The ultimate sacrifice. Some people might give their life for a good person. Rarely will somebody do it for a righteous man. But the ultimate sacrifice was that Christ gave his life for us while we were still sinners. Why did all those elders, why did those beasts sing what they sang? Why did these later, after the the lamb appeared, why did they sing what they sang? They recognized the greatness. We've read today a lot of things. Last week we read a, a lot of things that tied into the same thing. In John 1 and 29, it all points to what we have read points to basically the same thing that John said in John 1.29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we look at it in that way, that here is the one perfect sacrifice that was able to take the sin, any sin that was ever committed, And any sin that would ever be committed, this one sacrifice will take away those sins. I believe that makes him worthy to be praised. And if we really believe that, shouldn't we make that the focal point of our worship? I want to look at worship for just a moment. In 2 Samuel... Chapter 6, we get a picture of how King David worshipped the Lord. Let's read verse 5. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. Remember that phrase, with all their might before the Lord. With songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. Drop down to verse 14 through 22. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. While he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. 
Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. And David returned home to bless his household. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Disrobing in the sight of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. It says two times in there that David celebrated before the Lord with all his might, with song and dance. Song and dance. Most of us are okay with the song part. We have questions about the dance part. But it says that David celebrated with song and dance. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not saying we should go that far. Probably wouldn't go over very well. The display of emotion that David showed, his willingness to dance and leap before the Lord, to openly celebrate without regard to outward appearances, is how David worshipped the Lord. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to worship the Lord because he, he anointed me as king over Israel instead of one of Saul's family members. Of all the people he could have chosen, he chose me. See a parallel there? Why should we worship? An ephod, right. Now, the type of worship that David did obviously had its critics. His wife rebuked him for his emotional display. In fact, in verse 16, it says that she despised him in her heart. One thing I believe that that tells us, it reveals to us something about her heart and where it was. She seemed to be more concerned with outward appearances, how David looked in particular, than worshiping the Lord. Her heart was filled with distaste towards David's unkingly acts. She was probably also concerned that it would make her, as the king's wife, look bad. I don't think she was as concerned about David's image as she was about her own. What will people think? So she was mainly concerned with and focused on herself. David's response to his wife reveals where his heart is. In essence, he said, you haven't seen anything yet. You think that was crazy? 
You haven't seen anything. That next time, he would be even more undignified. I'm sure that made her happy. David had a heart that was fully devoted to the Lord. And his heart was reflected in his worship. Notice that when someone worships that way, with a heart that is totally devoted to the Lord, there really is no room for self. If we come to worship, and the thing that we're worried about is, oh, I don't, there's someone here that I don't know, and I'm not sure how they'll react. I don't care. If it's worship from your heart, don't worry about it. In most people's eyes, David made a complete fool of himself. But he worshipped with all his heart. That's the part that matters. When we come to worship, and I'm not saying you have to get up and, and dance like David did. But what I am saying that what is in your heart needs to come out in a way of worship. Remember what we've just talked about. That this whole scene that John has painted for us in heaven was really just an example of why we should worship. One thing that we do remember that God said of David, He said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Do we put everything we have into our worship? Now, I'm not saying that the measure of validity or sincerity of our worship is how much we sweat. Now, there are some people that the whole thing about worship is you got to see how, how much underarm stains they have when, when the worship service is done or how their hair's all messed up. That's not an indicator of how much you worshiped. It's an indicator of how much you sweat. Exactly. What I'm saying is that there's only two that know if you have worshipped with all your heart. One is you, and the other one is God. I am not the judge of that. But you certainly are. That's exactly right. With our heart. So we've read Scripture. We've talked about it. But why do we really worship? I want to read to you the words of a worship leader. His name is Steve Pruitt. And these are his words. While enjoying breakfast with a longtime friend who is a pastor, he asked if I would be interested in working with the praise band at his church. He felt there were some hurdles keeping the praise team from reaching their full potential. We didn't get far into the conversation before I realized the reason he wanted me to come. This is what he said. When the worship is good, it opens people up to hear the word. I preach better when the worship is good. When I suggested that worship was not to help him preach better, he was visibly offended. Needless to say, I never received a formal invitation. I believe that sometimes... We get so wrapped up in what satisfies us 
that we miss the whole reason why we're worshiping why we're worshiping in the first place. Let's back up a minute. First of all, we have to remember that we're all created with a nature with self in the center. We're born with a self-centered nature. We grow up in a society that tells us that we should better who? Ourselves. Hollywood and the media are constantly telling us to work at pampering ourselves and get better things. For who? For us. Often, we even choose the church we attend based on what it has to offer us as opposed to how we can serve the people. Ouch. In corporate settings of worship, we have seen people dance. We've seen people shout, clap their hands. And at the same time, in the same service, you'll see other people that are are kneeling down and, and they're bowed down and they're weeping. Other occasions, we've seen people that have been physically healed. Some have come to salvation during a worship service, even without a sermon. We have seen people at the altar repenting of sin, reconciling wrongs, and being refreshed and filled with the Holy Spirit in the middle of worship. As wonderful as these experiences have been, stay with me for just a minute. As wonderful as these experiences have been, we need to understand that the experiences themselves are not the origin of worship. They are the overflow of worship. All of these things are not the origin of worship. They're the overflow from when we do worship. Here's what happens. It is easy for us, if we're not careful, to worship our praise and to praise our worship. Think about that one for a minute. We get caught up in worshiping our praise and praising our worship, and we forget why we're doing it. We get caught up in the act. Because music is a, is a universal language, we can find ourselves worshiping the music instead of God. I've been in churches to where not a single word had been said, just the introduction to the song. And people were up all over the building, just going nuts. It was the music. Sorry if someone was offended by that. But the music is not what we're worshiping. Because we enjoy seeing people touched by God, we can find ourselves worshiping the experiences that sometime accompany God's presence. We like to feel good. We like for people to get happy. The purpose of worship, however, is not to experience the hand of God. It's to see the face of God. Worship is not to see what we can get. It's about what we give. Worship is for God, not for us. 
And we get that so twisted sometimes that we think, well, if I come in and I worship, then I'm going to feel good. Yes, you probably will. But that's not the purpose of it, is to feel good. If you come to church to worship to feel good, then you did it for the wrong reason. You come to church to worship God because He is worthy of our praise. The feeling good is an overflow that comes from our worship. Sure. Worship is for God. He is the giver and the receiver of worship. And all true worship has God at its center. It is all about Him. Believe it or not, worship is not about us. But for anyone that might think that worship is about us, there's a CD that I want you to see that will be available in the future. Here's a commercial for it. It's all about me, really. It is all about you. Now, the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about now, I lift my name on high. All 20 songs, all about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends, if you have any. Everyone can join in the worship with you, for you, and about you. Because you are unique, and you love you. There is none like me. No one else All this can for only $19.95. Operators are standing by to serve you. And I am why I sing. And I am why I live. If you order now, You'll also receive a second CD of Yule Tide Favorites. Call 1-800-ME-ME-ME or order online at memyselfandi.com Call today because no one can praise you like you. We have to be careful who our worship is about. That wasn't for real. First Corinthians 6 and 20 says, For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, 
which are God's. So your body and your spirit belong to God anyway. And all we're asked to do is to glorify Him with what belongs to Him anyway. It's kind of like giving our our offering to God. It's all His anyway. He just allows us to give a portion of it back and He blesses us for it. What an incredible way, what an incredible deal. I guess that's the best word to use. We have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. We are not our own. If our lives are not centered around us, how much more sincere will our worship be? Though we benefit greatly from worship, the purpose purpose of worship is not to make us feel better. And though we benefit from it, it's not for our benefit. It is to glorify God. Worship has one agenda, and that's God. God bless you.